Okay, so welcome to the Simongos podcast. Uh, this is a little bit different. Greg, do you know that you're my first international guest? I do not. It's a real honour. Well, so. this is this is a big honour for me. So I'm really delighted. So today we're going to talk a little bit a little bit about something that I'm not that familiar with, and I think most of our listeners probably aren't that familiar with. So we're very very excited to talk about this. And Greg, you've very kindly came over to you, you're starting some collaboration with some of this work, and we'll talk about that a wee bit later. Um, but we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, so this feels a little bit futuristic. All right, we're going to go all Star Trekky. Take <laughs> <laughs> a genre, sure. So, so I think a good a good starting point would be Greg, if you don't mind, just giving us a little bit of background, just on who you are and and how you've got into this field. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's certainly by a winding road. Uh, my name is Greg McKelvey. I'm the chief medical officer for a company called Kensai. Uh, I've spent the past two years of my life working with them, really doing applied artificial intelligence in a subset of that called machine learning, uniquely in the healthcare space. Uh, I'm a physician by training, originally a preventive medicine, occupational medicine by trade, and then these past couple of years as a, a practicing clinical informaticist alone. And how did you get into it? Was it just, uh, uh, were you interested in technology or how did you grow the, the interest in artificial intelligence? It, it actually kind of spun out of my background in in population health and preventive medicine. I was very interested in sort of the care of large numbers of people that kind of, uh, you know, harkens you towards data in some sense. And then while I was at uni uh, finishing my fellowship training, um, I had a little bit of an opportunity to get exposed to biomedical informatics and, uh, and found this company that was about to spin out of the university with some Microsoft help. And uh, they needed a clinician, you know, for the domain expertise. And so I sort of had the opportunity to evolve my interest uh, into a more applied realm. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to take you down to a very basic level. Is sure. that okay? Of course. Could you start, do you mind, by just trying to give us a basic overview for, this is artificial intelligence for dummies, and I, I, I'm not, I don't mean that about my audience, I mean that about me. Um, do you mind just giving us a wee bit of a background, what, a basic overview of what exactly artificial intelligence is? Yeah, absolutely. And um, and, and actually, I'll, I'll join your uh parenthetical comment in that I think, you know, a lot of my job is actually demystifying what it is that we're doing. And, and to be frank, I try to avoid artificial intelligence as a label or AI just because it's both so overwrought to a certain extent, it's overhyped, uh, and to the point that it actually is misleading. It kind of obfuscates what it really is and how people can think about using it, which is as a tool to do what they're already doing as clinicians or administrators every day. Uh, but fundamentally, artificial intelligence is, is just using technology to replicate intelligence, which is sort of planning and deciding and, and acting in the world, uh, which is a very general set of functions. And actually, I guess if we're going to introduce a series of distinctions here to understand artificial intelligence, the first would be between the notion of artificial general intelligence, which is sort of the sci-fi picture you have of a, a futuristic robot chasing you and solving problems and talking like a human, and the reality of where we are, which is a much more narrow set of specialized intelligence, um, which is sort of single task learning, and we'll talk a little bit about that, um, or, or the field of machine learning, which is sort of a subset of the general field of artificial intelligence as a whole. Now, I'm going to try and, and give you my interpretation of it, and you can correct me just in case this isn't what it is. Sure. So basically, it's, it's feeding a series of data or information into a computer and using algorithms to make predictions on whatever it is that you're trying to predict and that could be a diagnosis or predicting outcomes in patients or is that basically it? gathering information using algorithms and then using that to make information available to health professionals so they can make better quicker more efficient decisions is that a really basic actually that's a more advanced definition so if you think about what you just said 
um, you actually took the core of what machine learning is and we'll, we'll kind of specify that. And then you built on top of it the ability to use it to do things, which is actually a, a, a more advanced way of thinking about it. But fundamentally, you caught the core of it at the beginning, which is, you know, machine learning is uh, basically pattern recognition that isn't explicitly programmed is one way to think about it. So if you go back to, um, you know, 10, 20 years ago, and actually, actually machine learning is older than that, so that's a little bit of cheating. But if you think about the way that you probably conceptualize a computer program, it's a set of rules, right? So if you want to be clinical, you can almost think about a decision tree, where if I have a patient complaining of a symptom X, and then they manifest a physical exam finding Y, then I'm going to do treatment Z. Right. And so you think about writing that as a series of explicit statements, and then you can make a program that plugs those parameters in and it outputs what you should do. That's sort of the pre-machine learning vision of intelligence. And those are expert systems. And there's lots of other uh, uh, ways to describe that. Machine learning instead is, is if I took a lot of data... Um, and, and we'll talk about the different types of machine learning. So you said prediction, which is important. That's actually one uh, common application of machine learning, but it's not the entire domain of it. What's more general and, and defines machine learning is just the, uh, the learning of programs or the generation of algorithms without the explicit statement of rules. So instead of me saying that if I see a patient with chest pain, uh, do X, I actually would give the computer a lot of instances of patients with chest pain and then outcomes that I'm interested in, for instance, mortality or how long they're going to be in the hospital. And instead of me saying what I think the translation is between the information about the patient and the thing that I care about, uh, the computer can actually tell me what that relationship is. And I know that's fairly concrete, but I think when we talk through some specific examples, it actually become fairly straightforward. Prediction is a common application of this. So if you think about in the pre-machine learning days, this is actually going to hop over away from programming and into traditional statistics. So think about cardiovascular risk. And if you go to a GP and, you know, what most of what they ask you and much of what they do to you is actually populating regression equations for risk, right? So what is your uh, BMI? What is your blood pressure? How are your lipids looking? I'm really populating an equation to say, what's your risk of cardiovascular disease or, or significant outcomes over some time period? That equation of what to put in and what the weights are and then what the risk is, is, is a set of rules, essentially. It was learned over data, but it's kind of been codified and fixed. The machine learning approach instead would be, I look at all of the data that's in your electronic health record or perhaps even beyond that, and I've looked at an entire population of people who've had these outcomes that we care about, so cardiovascular events, and instead of me telling the computer what's important to predict that those things will happen, it actually learns those relationships itself. And there's other benefits of it that are really dividends of having a lot more computation at our fingertips and other things. Uh, but that's one of the major values of machine learning is that you've automated the process of discovery as opposed to having to, uh, you know, sort of code it yourself manually. So I thought when we were going to have this conversation, I thought this is all very futuristic. This may not even be in my lifetime. But is it fair to say that we're already living with artificial intelligence? And maybe some people don't even know that. Um, it may be more in daily life, but there are some great examples that we're, we're using artificial intelligence all the time, aren't we? I mean, realistically, your reality is permeated with machine learning today. I think even the Amish use Google um, in the United States. I mean, it's almost inescapable at this point. And certainly the, the fabric of modern society is completely suffused with it at this point. So you can imagine a search engine that has a bunch of rules and it says, if someone types in uh, a Jaguar, 
uh, show them pictures of big cats. Unless they have these sorts of characteristics, then show them a picture of a car. And you can quickly imagine how impossible it would be to capture all of human inquisitiveness to manually populate a search engine and make it any good. Instead, Google is using machine learning. It's looking at lots and lots of interactions of people who type things in, often misspelled, and the results that they do or don't interact with to learn what it should present to people. Yeah. And there's other examples. I picked out a few, like, uh, well, all social media sites, I think, are mm-hmm. using some form to target you with things and, you know, autopilots and spam filters and emails. Right. I mean, we're, we're surrounded by it already. We probably didn't even really know. Right. Facial recognition, for example. Yeah. Machine learning. So tell us about medicine. It's probably yeah. only a bit more recently entering the, the healthcare sphere. Is that right? But it is already establishing it its, itself. It can, can you give us any examples of, of it already in use? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, and I'll give some closer to home. I mean, certainly artificial intelligence is... I, I mean, it's, it's a newer field, right? So a, a very uh, well-known beginning date for it is in 1956 at a conference um, at Dartmouth College where many luminaries who went on to sort of become the forefathers of the field met. They actually coined the term artificial intelligence and sort of set a research agenda that uh, sort of was famously ambitious where they thought, and I, I wish I had the direct quotation, that you know a, a small team working for some months should be able to sort of accomplish this grand list of goals that it turns out we're still struggling with today. Um, but the field since has, has evolved um, quite a bit, and there have been uh, sort of these peaks and valleys in terms of expectations and capabilities, and those are famously called uh, AI winters when sort of uh, things are overhyped, and then there's a deflation and sort of a lull in research. But um, through that history, medicine has been one of the earliest uh, sort of Edens for the application of intelligence, just because I, I think everyone agrees it, it's, it has the highest face validity for where we could extract human well-being from extended intelligence. And so there were a lot of early efforts, very famously at Stanford, among uh, many other institutions, to use some of those earlier rule-based systems that I mentioned to try to do things like diagnostic assistance. Uh, we're actually in the, I think, the third um, sort of peak or AI summer at the moment, and this is driven by deep learning, and we can come back to what that means. Uh, but some of the early results of this uh, latest thrust of the evolution of the field are in image recognition. So very famously, Google has done research uh, using machine vision to recognize diabetic retinopathy uh, at or above human expert level. Uh, similarly, looking at radiology scans, chest x-rays, looking at skin cancers. So those are all in a similar vein of kind of pattern recognition over imaging, um, where we're actually seeing uh, very stable results that will quickly be entering clinical practice. So, Greg, you're obviously over here collaborating with uh, with a very incredible team of very, very smart people. One of them sitting beside us here, so I have to say that. Um, but can you give us a wee example of what it is you're working up to? I'm just trying to get in my head exactly how I see this being applied to me as an emergency physician. So what are you guys uh, working on and, and where do you see that supporting our care? Yeah, absolutely. So we've just concluded the first round of uh, this project that we've undertaken together. Uh, initially, what we did is we took a large data set um, from uh, Greater Glasgow and Clyde, looking at A&E presentations for COPD patients and looking to whether or not we could predict um, the patients that present, whether they'd be admitted. Once admitted, how long are they likely to stay? And that's really to try to address the operational challenges uh, in the A&E. 
But really, this was part of a larger project that we're now moving forward on um, to try to move care backwards away from sort of the reactive acute care that we deal with now using machine learning and data to really not just predict things, but to really prevent and, and really to use the new technologies that are available uh, in a cost effective and ef- uh, efficient way to really prevent people from ending up in A&E and, and admitted in the first place. So, for example, targeting uh, wearables and uh, remote monitoring or non-invasive ventilation for COPD to try to prevent those admissions in the first place. Um, so we, we were chatting a wee bit before about the, the wearable products. Do you mind expanding yeah, on that a wee bit just for our listeners? Because it's very, very interesting. How, how do you see that working? And talk, talk us through that. Yeah, absolutely. So by, by using the electronic health data from the initial part of the project, we're able to risk stratify these patients better. So understanding who's truly at risk for exacerbations, presentation at A&E, and then admission. Um, but really the wearable is is part of completely redesigning how we provide care for these COPD patients. And it's really about shifting the interventions that right now we do reactively in hospital out into the community. So patients who would come in for non-invasive ventilation, can we shift that to them? And in turn, can we gather new data that helps us restratify even better? Similarly, the application that we're providing to gather symptom information from patients to really understand where they are and the care that they need proactively to really prevent those uh, presentations. So just on a basic sense, the machine that they're wearing is monitoring them physiologically, can predict when changes are happening so that intervention can be applied sooner or we can involve community um, teams to maybe even avoid certain admissions. Is that basic understanding of that? Exactly, and that's actually the charter for this uh, next phase of our collaboration is uh, we're taking high-risk patients uh, really, who by definition have had more than five uh, inpatient admissions in a year. And our goal is to remove one of those per patient per year by the end of this through the combination of machine learning and remote monitoring and community care. Okay, so that's that's pretty fascinating. Do you mind if I take you into the future? Because obviously you're sure. someone who's, who's right there at the forefront of this uh, kind of development. So just out of curiosity, so I, I've probably got about another 25 years left in, in this job. What, what do you predict? What, what will my, my job look like when I retire? So 25 years from now, how, how do you think the way that I am being a, a doctor in the emergency department will differ with the, the, the incorporation of more kind of machine learning? Yeah, absolutely. And if I can quote uh, my mentor and the co-founder of our company, who's a a data scientist, um, you know, I don't make predictions. I make models that make predictions. Uh, But if I have to speculate, uh, I, you know, I think it's really difficult to say in the particulars, you know, what the world will look like. But one thing I'm confident of is that you will be doing more things that are uniquely the capability of a highly trained uh, human when you're practicing emergency medicine. I think that means a lot of the tasks that right now we see as rote or maybe, um, you know, not mechanical, but fairly uh, repetitious will be offloaded and they'll be automated and there'll be much more time and bandwidth to really pay attention to the the corner cases that really tax our intelligence and force us to do what we do uniquely, which is to be creative and noisy environments and and come up with new solutions. Because it's probably fair to say that, you know, when we're on a standard shift, the amount of time that we spend with the patient and the amount of time we spent at the computer writing notes, scrolling through old information, their old history, their old records. I don't know. It feels like we do that more than actually being with the patient. So is that something that you're saying? We, we, it might give us more time to be with the patient, examine the patient, communicate with the patient, and then leave the machines who can do that stuff 
a bit more efficiently to do that part of the job and leave us to do more of the human aspect. Is that, I think that's what you said, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So I'm nodding uh, vociferously if you can do that. But, uh, <laughs> so, and I can confirm he's <laughs> nodding vociferously. Yeah. So uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, information retrieval, uh, data entry, certainly, these are things that we at this point are all aware is sort of an unsustainable burden on clinicians of all ranks. Um, and they're really not using us to our fullest effect. And so I think a lot more of our day in 25 years is going to be spent on those higher order cognitive processes of problem solving and the human level of communication with patients, which is really our unique value. So when I first knew that I was coming to talk to you, the, the image that I conjured up in my head, which I'm sure everyone will do, is Star Trek. And a doctor with a machine that basically scans you and nearly makes all the decisions for you. And I know that's a wee bit ridiculous, but what I'm trying to get at is, I presume machines and machine learning is going to help us also make diagnoses better and decisions on those diagnoses better or more efficiently. Is that fair to say? It won't just just give us more human contact time, but it'll actually help us uh, kind of choose correct correctly what and probably more... Um, specifically or targeted for our patients better is that is that fair to say i i think it is and, and i think if we recall what we've been discussing about where machine learning actually is better than people it's in the two things you've mentioned which are handling massive amounts of data and sort of integrating it in a consistent and rational way and so what that means for decision making is uh, taking leaving less data on the table, less information on the table, which we currently do now because we just can't deal with it. You know, the human mind famously can deal with you know seven plus or minus two things uh, at a time in working memory. And although that's that's sort of an uncharitable uh, characterization of our abilities, um, you know, there's an element of truth there. We we just can't integrate ten thousand data points from the electronic health record to make a determination about a, a diagnosis or a prognosis. It's just infeasible. Uh, whereas the algorithm can. I think the second value is that the machine will make the same decision effectively every time. And really where that allows humans to be better is that you suddenly have a junior doctor who can effectively look at what a senior clinician looking at the same data, looking at the same patient would arrive at. And, and it can really be a man plus machine as opposed to a man versus machine. So, so there's a little bit of this that feels a little bit uneasy. Absolutely. And I'm sure... You've come across this many times. Now, when I did a little bit of a, a look around in, in preparation for this, obviously I was looking at artificial intelligence, which wasn't all medically focused or medically related. But there are certain people in certain high up places who know a lot more about this, who have some concerns about artificial intelligence. And I mean more in the general uh, life rather than a physician or healthcare focused. Should we be scared or worried yeah, I mean it's and that's it's very those are reasonable concerns to entertain and I think the answer about whether we should be worried and what we should be worried about goes back to that first distinction we made about general artificial intelligence versus narrow. Um, worrying about an AI apocalypse or the singularity or any of that is general artificial intelligence, and that's frankly beyond my pay grade. Uh, and there's some very famous back and forth among the luminaries about this. So, you know, while you have Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking saying one thing, you have others saying, you know, that's like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. So, um, it's it's a little. Uh, and it's, it's probably a reflection of people don't really know, do they? They, they don't. Extreme that's, views that's a fair, no one really I, knows for sure. I don't think anyone would dispute that characterization of that. Um, debate. No one knows. It's And we're really trying to... But in terms of just healthcare, yes. there'll be people who think, well, are you going to need me in the future? Do you know, are we going to need less doctors? Are machines going to do more of what doctors currently do? 
So there's a, and I, and I want to put a pin too to come back on where we should be worried about this in the nearer term and closer to home. But, you know, thinking about the impact on clinicians, I think, I, and again, this gets back to the question of what will your life look like in 25 years? I am very confident that that doesn't look like they're not being emergency doctors or any other type of physician. And the reason is I think that artificial intelligence is going to eliminate some aspects of our careers and frankly, probably the ones that we wish we were doing less of. But in turn, that means there's more of a dependency on the things that are unique human capabilities. Um, and so I think the role of clinicians will certainly change because of AI and ML, but I think it'll change for the better. There's an interesting precedent in terms of automation that came in the, the mid 20th century. And you look at the effect that automated teller machines, so we call them ATMs. I don't know if you guys have a different acronym. but no, uh, no, ATMs, yeah. So what effect did that have on the population of bank tellers? Uh, it actually has, they, their population has increased. And the reason for that is that um, by not freeing up that function, they actually created more, it was cheaper to build branches. So there are more branches and it shifted the role from being someone who dispenses cash to somebody who has sales conversations and does sort of higher order functioning. And I think that is likely the outcome versus the, the rare outcome of extinction, which to, as far as I know has only happened to one position, which is that of elevator operator. Uh, so I think physicians are much more likely to be the former than the latter. Could it be that certain specialisms are a little bit more at risk than others? I mean, there's obviously certain um, areas of medicine that have a little less patient focus, maybe a bit more interpretive diagnostics. So radiology is what I'm trying to get at. Could it be that machines may take over that role? Maybe would there be less requirement for a human sitting looking at lots and lots and lots of images when a computer could do that probably quickly and, and mo in more detail. So sh should some areas of medicine be a little bit worried? I think I, undoubtedly the nature of medicine in general will change. I think some fields will be more impacted than others, just depending, as you're mentioning, on what fraction of their current responsibilities is automatable with machine learning. Um, but I, I think even in the case of diagnostic radiology or pathology or in dermatology, the routine parts that are removed are just going to require these higher order bottlenecks where only humans can intervene. And effectively, they're just managing the exceptions of which there will be many, as opposed to doing the routine parts. Um, so the day will look very different, but I think it'll actually be better for them. So say someone's listening to this who has an interest in technology, maybe this is a kind of fairly new topic to them, what would you recommend to them right now? Should the next generation or even the current generation start to be getting more familiar with technology and artificial intelligence? Should we just leave it to the big companies to make this stuff for us to use? Or should we be learning how to be more creative and we drive what this can do for us, or is it better to leave it to the big tech people to, or a bit of both? I, I would certainly lean towards being more hands-on and skeptical and inquisitive uh, than being sort of passive and letting the technology drive. I think I, what I meant is, um, where can you go to learn about sure, it? Yeah. Like, like, should you do a degree? Should you, is there a course that you can go on? Where does someone learn more if they wanted to be really um, kind of at the forefront of this? What, what, where can we go and get more more learning? So, I mean, certainly, and there, there are increasing numbers of physicians who are doing advanced level, doctoral level training, uh, even concurrently with their medical training. But I don't think that the contributions of physicians to the application of artificial intelligence in medicine will be limited to that set of folks. Uh, there are fantastic resources 
partially as a consequence of the the machine learning that's around us uh, in, in in MOOCs online, so massively open uh, courses, uh, and certainly just practicing with data sets. There are ample data sets available. Uh, there are tutorials. And I, I think one of the best ways that someone can quickly gain facility and sort of uh, you know, an appropriate appreciation for what's possible and what isn't possible is just by picking up a data set and playing with it for a little while. And, and you'll quickly learn kind of where the limitations are and where you could grow and whether that's your interest. And I understand Google has made some open source stuff available, hasn't it? So yeah. There is stuff that you can just go and, and take already and, and kind of play with it a bit, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there are many open machine learning platforms. Uh, so Google, Microsoft, Amazon have all opened up their infrastructure for people to play with. And there's there are ample data sets, including for medicine, um, that you can load in and, and kind of go to work on. And we should say as well that obviously up here in Glasgow in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, they're doing some work and that's why you're here. So we'll put some links to some of the work that they're doing here. If anyone even in the UK wants to yeah, connect with what's happening here, that might be a, even a starting point for some. So I'm going to raise some ethical issues. Is that okay? No, please do. Um, it all sounds extremely exciting, but it does. There's still that slight sense of unease, and I guess that the main thing for me. Well, I was going to ask you what what you perceive are some of the big issues. Uh, for me, the primary one I think of is who's regulating this. Mm-hmm. You know, are the big tech giants suddenly having far more influence uh, in healthcare? than they did previously? And is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? So who's governing this? And, and, and what do you perceive are the ethical problems for the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think to unpack that a little bit, um, you know, certainly the technology is evolving so quickly that, um, you know, while most things are currently covered by existing sort of arrangements for research, uh, privacy, the way we handle data, and the ethical underpinnings of those, um, you know, the regulatory frameworks are evolving. There's certainly a tension within the tech companies of the risks that are involved. Many of them have set up uh, independent regulatory advisory boards to kind of ground them uh, in doing the right thing. But right now, I mean, I, I think most of this, and certainly our work locally here, is is covered by the current institutions that uh, protect patients, protect privacy, protect data, and really ensure that we're doing the right thing, which at the end of the day is taking care of people. And I think... Um, this is one of the industries where the technology can't lead for its own sake, because at the end of the day, this is about taking care of people. And it's in a very regulated, complex environment where fundamentally there are some experts driving who have a unique accountability that they are not going to delegate to a technology company in the Silicon Valley. So I think technology will enable healthcare transformation, but it cannot drive it. Okay, Greg. So I think we've probably come to the end. That's been a, a, an incredible run through uh, machine learning and, w- and what is currently happening and what we can expect for the future. It's been very enlightening for me. Uh, thank you very much for giving me your time. Well, one thing I always do with, with the St. Mungo's podcast is I always finish with one last question, if you don't mind. Um, so it's not on machine learning, or maybe it is, depending on, on how you want to answer this. But basically, I, I ask everyone, given the experience you now have uh, in your career, what you've gathered in your career, if you could go back in time and advise your junior self just starting out, leaving university or school or whatever, what piece of advice would you give them? What have you gained in all your experience now that would serve them just starting their careers? You know, to answer it at the most personal level, I don't think I would change that much. Uh, I think I have a pat answer, which is I would have advised myself to learn to code earlier. Um, I would never have regretted that. But I also would have said the same thing about playing the guitar. So, yeah. <laughs> Never too late. Never That's, too right. Late. That's right. Uh, funny, just, just when you mentioned that there, I, I didn't actually ask you before. Do you mind if I ask you now, just before we finish this podcast, but you mentioned about coding there. 
Is that something worth doing? I think I mentioned before, what should the next generation or, or people interested in this do? Is it worth doing some coding? Is it worth um, developing your kind of tech and coding knowledge to be really good at this stuff? Or, or what would you suggest to people who are really interested in this topic? I think certainly everyone I would encourage to get exposed to this. Um, not everyone needs to become a software developer. But I think, yeah, you know, and I regret that I don't have the, the person's name to cite, but there was a lovely article I read about how coding is not the new literacy, sort of solving problems with data is the new literacy. And I think everyone should develop that facility. So exposure to code, but not necessarily that is a native language. And there's a lot of open source stuff where it's can skip a little bit of that. If that's not your forte, you can still take what's been done already and still use it um, to your advantage. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think physicians and clinicians have a, an unfair advantage in the field of applying uh, machine learning to healthcare in that it's, it's always going to be a team sport. And so you don't have to be the person writing the software for software to work well in medicine. You just have to be the person who can communicate with that person effectively to solve problems for patients. Dr. Greg McKelvey, thank you very, very much. It's been very, very interesting. Any last little parting kind of thoughts? Any last little message you want to leave our listeners? Yeah, actually, I would, I would love to emphasize one thing, and I think this gets back to our first questions about, you know, should I be worried about artificial intelligence? Uh, and there's a, a famous line, and again, I regret that I don't have the person's name, but you, you should be more worried about artificial stupidity. And <laughs> I, I think the best antidote to that is is people getting involved, people cracking a data set, even just for a little while, to understand what is and isn't there, so they can be informed participants. And I think that's ultimately going to be to the, the benefit of our patients and our colleagues and each other, so in the field as a whole. Well, look, thank you very, very much for your time. Good luck with your COPD project. Thank we'll you. all be looking out for that. I'm sure we'll be using it in the near future. Uh, and, and it's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Pleasure, Owen. So many thanks to Greg McKelvey. He was here on a, only a very short visit in Glasgow, so I really appreciate the fact that he could find a little bit of time to record this interview with us. I think my main take-home points are, number one, Artificial intelligence is essentially machines replicating some human cognitive functions such as planning, decision making, learning and problem solving. And machine learning is really a subset of that where machines can take and process masses of data and in effect learn from that and improve the performance of specific tasks. Number two, artificial intelligence already permeates our lives. Things like search engines, social media sites, online shopping, and it's increasingly impacting on healthcare and there's a huge amount of the time and money being invested into the, the application of artificial intelligence and machine learning in various aspects of healthcare. So it's something we should all uh, become a little bit more familiar with. Number three, it's a common question about whether artificial intelligence is likely to replace doctors. But I think Greg would say that it's unlikely that we will be unnecessary, but I think our roles will definitely change in the coming years. Computers are likely to do a lot more of the mundane tasks, which machines do a lot quicker and more efficiently, leaving us to do a lot more of the things that humans are uniquely capable of doing, communicating, problem solving, being creative. And number four, it's a very exciting time to be involved in this field. And there are lots of ways that you can do so without any formal training. There's lots of online courses and tutorials and open source platforms. And we'll put a link to all of those in our show notes. Many, many thanks to Greg. Many, many thanks to you for listening. And take care. <laughs>